Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I hope that, I hope that you're doing well. I hope that you are. Uh, and, it, and if you're not doing well, I hope that you are, are letting people know that you're not doing well. You know, I hope that you're reaching out and talking to somebody about it and sharing it or journaling about it. I, you know, yesterday I was struggling in this episode. I talk about how I just been on this eating binge lately where <clears throat> donuts, ice cream, all the things is, is unlike me. Uh, I mean, not okay. It's not unlike me. Anybody who knows me knows I get down with some donuts. But uh, but recently, it's just been a change in my my eating patterns, uh, where I've been skipping dinner and replacing it with with donuts, ice cream, and all all the things. And I was like, "What's going on here?" And and I just realized that like I need endorphins. Anybody out there struggling with f- uh, food and and binge eating, and you realize this. It's usually at the same time. Like I'm not waking up wanting donuts. It's always at the same time every day between like uh, noon and three. So something about that is like the witching hour. There's a book called The Noonday Demon that uh, that talks about um, how sometimes the depression can hawk you in the middle of the day. So I think I think especially because it's the summertime, there's an extra light going on outside. But anyway, so. I was like, all right, what is it that I'm getting from the the food that uh, that I need? And I realized uh, it releases endorphins in your body, and and it's, it's a hormone. And so I looked up other ways of of naturally releasing those hormones, and uh, and there's a few ways you can get it through music, massage, exercise releases endorphins. Um, you know, uh, being outside. Uh, what were the other ones? Uh, making a playlist. You know, if you can't listen to music, making a playlist. There is, oh my God, why is, why am I having a brain drain? I even put in my calendar, Leo needs endorphins. And I put it in there every day to remind me that I need endorphins. Oh, uh, swimming, dance, that, that goes under exercise. Uh, sex releases endorphins. Uh, chocolate. Chili peppers. I'm gonna go get. <laughs> I'm gonna go get some chocolate today, um, which is crazy. But yeah, that's what I'm gonna do. Uh, they have on here drinking wine, but if you're struggling with alcohol, do not let this be a uh, give you. Don't let this give you permission to start drinking again. Um, that's why they have a list of things you can do. So pick the ones that are best for you. Right. Um, laughing, laughing releases, uh, endorphins. So, you know, right now I'm, uh, I, I've got this new app called fit rate. Oh, it's not a new app, but there's an app called fit radio and they have these DJs on there. And I, and I play the music for my, uh, my clients for personal training, but now I'm just listening to it for myself too. Cause they have great music and it's like having your own DJ. Um, so if uh, you want to check out fit radio, I'm not sponsored by them at all, but, um, but they just always have great music and you know it's like there's there's no commercials and a lot of them they'll if even with the hip hop they will blurt out the uh the profanity cuz I'm not a huge fan of all that profanity anyway uh, I'm excited about today's episode we have uh author Lucas Wolf on today that's right he wrote a book 
about his life, which I should do. Um, his book is My Perfect Life, How Depression Almost Ended It and How I Found Purpose Through Pain. Um, my boy Lucas, man, this was a great episode. We we really uh, start off, uh, you know, connecting on uh, Penn State. You have to listen uh, in for that. But, you know, Lucas, uh, his journey was uh, one where it was fraught with guilt over how he was raised and uh, and how he dealt with that. And uh, he shared he shares with us three ways in which he's dealt with his depression. And I thought that they were they were very wonderful. I wrote them down. And I can't wait for you guys to hear how he coped with it and how he dealt with his intrusive thoughts of suicide and uh, panic attacks. And we also talk about um, how to be kind and firm with yourself, which is I oh, that that balance of I it's either like I'm either beating myself up, complete self-flagellation. Or I'm just, uh, you know, completely coddling myself. And, and to find that space in the middle is, is such a, a challenge. And so, uh, but Lucas shares with us how to be kind and firm at the same time. Where is that, where is that sweet spot right there? Uh, so, in the meantime, you can also go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. And with that said... Let's jump into the episode. Lucas. Hey, Leo. What's going on, brother? Hey, not too much. How you doing? Uh, you know, eating way too many grapes as usual. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you got a lot of those over in California, right? Yeah, where are you at, Lucas? I'm actually East Coast. I'm in uh, New Jersey. The Garden State. Yes, sir. Now, are you in a garden part or are you in a not-so-garden part? Uh, I guess I'm in the not so garden part. I'm, uh, I live, uh, in Lawrenceville. It's about, uh, maybe about 20 minutes outside of Princeton area. Oh, I didn't realize Princeton was in, uh, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Way yep. to, way to name drop. Did you go to Princeton? Lewis? No, no, I did not. I went to, uh, I went to Penn State actually. Whoa. I almost went to Penn State. Oh, yeah, did you really? Yeah, I, so, you know, I played, uh, I mean, you probably don't know. I played college football, and and Penn State was the first school to uh, recruit me. They were the first school to send me a letter of, of, of interest to play there. Um, wow. And, That's incredible. Well, and the incredible part was uh, that letter saved my life. I was I was brought up on carjacking charges at the time um i couldn't prove my innocence like i, I couldn't prove that I, I didn't do it that i wasn't there at the time so uh they're gonna sentence me and then because i got that letter the day before my court date and showed it to the judge i was like listen i'm gonna go to penn state and play football he was like all right i'll just give you community service over the summer he goes but if i see you back in here again kid it's a wrap <laughs> Uh, so I'm very grateful to Penn State, even though I've never been there. Saved my life. What'd you major in at Penn State? I actually, I majored in chemical engineering. I don't even know what that is. It sounds like you like, (laughs) it sounds like you're just like in a lab mixing up stuff, like some breaking bad stuff, you know, like there's some explosions. 
It was uh it was definitely pretty painful. Yeah. It had to do with a lot of uh I mean you learn a lot of manufacturing things, thermodynamics, stuff like that. I don't know. It it it, it uh I don't regret doing it, but um it was hard. I'll, I'll say that much. It was uh it was definitely it was definitely difficult. Um but uh yeah, that's that's uh, yeah. So, what, what made I you go into it? I mean, you clearly couldn't have gone in a chemical engineering thinking it was going to be a breeze. What made you? No. What made you get into it? Um, so I, I I did I wanted something difficult because I was kind of lazy in high school, um, and I had a lot of good opportunity, and uh, I I felt like I really didn't just live up to the potential. Um, I also knew that. I was inclined to get myself into trouble if I had too much free time on my hands. So I wanted to do something that was going to be difficult that, that wouldn't allow for that. And I also wanted to do something that I, that I didn't think that I could teach myself. Um, and, and I had always had an interest in, in chemistry and engineering type stuff. And, uh, it, it just kind of fit and I found my way there. Wow, those are some really great reasons to major in engineering. Uh, yeah. I, you know, that, you know, if I had talked to you and when I was in, because I was a pre-med major and I was like, this is way too easy. I may have stayed a pre-med major because I don't do well when I have too much time on my hands. And I, I was a psych major and they gave me way more time on my hands than uh, what I needed, not that it wasn't challenging, but it, it wasn't enough to keep me occupied, uh, long enough. And, uh, and psychology is something I felt like I definitely could have, uh, taught myself. Um, but you know, the pre-med stuff, not so much. So, so hats off yeah. to you, man. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. You're, so is, uh, uh, is psychology what you ended up doing? Um, well, I'm, you know, th what's fascinating is that y y y when you get out of college and into the real world, you start to learn that it's all psychology. I, I, you know, it, it, when they say life is 90% mental, it, it's, it, it's true because whether you are uh, a cashier at, you know, Walgreens or... Uh, a psychologist or an athlete or, uh, you know, chemical engineer, like a lot of it's psychology in terms of how do you manage your mental health so that you can perform optimally, right? And because we're talking about sleep, we're talking about uh, social intelligence, uh, managing emotions, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah. you realize that psychology uh, – permeates all areas of life where you're talking about your relationships, you know, your girlfriend, wife, your children, uh, all these things uh, require some, some level of psychology. So uh, yeah, I'm always using it. This podcast, you know, and then also uh, do coaching um, and, and personal training. Like it's even, even with the stand-up comedy in order to really, um, to do the comedy that I want to do uh, and to provide the insights I want to provide requires a level of, uh, of empathy, of compassion, of understanding people and, and 
and and what motivates uh, human behavior. So yeah, it's it's always. I mean, just yesterday I ate <laughs> um, four cupcakes and I had a a, a, a a Carl's Jr. burger with fries and a milkshake, which I haven't had in uh, months, like five six months. And I just like went on this food bender. And so immediately I was like, all right, what, what psychologically is going on? What's going on with my hormones? What do I really need? And so then I was like, oh, okay, I just need endorphins. And I have to figure out a healthier way to get endorphins. You know, like I'm, I'm constantly tweaking, alternating. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Leo engineer. Right. <laughs> no, that's, that's super cool. No, that is, that, that is really cool. And, and just trying to figure out like why you do certain things, you know, why, why you have cravings for this or that or the other thing. That's, that, that's some neat stuff. The you know you so Lucas you have this book my perfect life how depression almost ended it and how I found purpose through pain talk talk to me about this book how what why was it perfect out there in New Jersey for you yeah so I uh, um, you know I, I I grew up well um, I had a I had a good close family um, you know we we did stuff together we went on vacations together we ate dinner together, uh, at the table with the TV off. Uh, you know, we did holidays. I, I had a very good home, a very good family. I had a good education. Uh, I had a, a group of friends, you know, I, we were all close. Uh, I had opportunity. I, I played a lot of sports. I was pretty decent at most of them. And I, I never really had anything that I had to worry about. You know, I never had to worry about money. I never had to worry about where my next meal was going to come from. I, you know, it was, a, it was a good, comfortable life. I, I think it's the kind of life that we would all want to provide for our kids. Um, so when I started experiencing, you know, symptoms of depression in, in high school, um, which I had had no idea that that's what it was. I I had no idea what it was. I just figured it was something to do with me being a teenager. You know, everyone says that um, that teenage years are, are kind of weird. And I assumed it just had something to do with that. And I always just tried to push through it and, and make excuses for it because I, I didn't think that I had any right to feel in any way depressed. Um, I felt that my life was too good for that. Uh, and that I hadn't really earned the right to be depressed um, because there's people all over the place that really struggle and that go through, you know, true tragedy. And I hadn't experienced any of that. Um, and, uh, you know, over the course of a, a couple of years through high school and through college and eventually breaking down and getting to the point where I realized I'm not going to live if I don't get help. Like, that's it. Um, I started to meet and hear about and read about more and more people that were like me, these, these young adults that lived perfect lives, you know, good family, good friends, good grades, good opportunity. And all of a sudden they were just gone. No real symptoms or signs shown at the time. And it was one of those things that, you know, looking back and picking up the pieces, you could kind of see where it had gone wrong, but it wasn't obvious until it was over. Um, and as I started to realize that this was more and more the case really across the country, I, I 
one, I had some relief that, okay, I'm not completely insane. Um, you know, I'm not the only person this has happened to. And two, how, how can I help these people that are just like me who maybe are silent about what they're going through because like me, they didn't think that they had the right. They, they didn't think that they earned the right to struggle because their life was easy by comparison to, you know, to what others go through. Um, and that's sort of where the idea for my perfect life came from. So you, uh, it's, it's, I want to dig more into the details of your, of your childhood uh, in terms of your family, you're going on vacations, you're having dinner together. Uh, are there other siblings involved? Is, are you the oldest, the youngest? What's happening? Yeah, so I, um, I have a twin brother, Joe, and then I have a younger brother, Gabriel. Um, and my younger brother, Gabriel, was actually born healthy, but at 11 months old, he developed pneumococcal meningitis, and he is uh, physically and mentally disabled. Um, and he has recovered far more than what the doctors ever thought he could. Um, and I have pretty vivid memories of his recovery growing up um, and just, uh, you know, kind of being a part of that. Um, but the weird thing is, is it never seemed not normal to me to have a have a disabled brother and have a twin brother um i never was really aware until i got older um i guess how unique that is yeah that's unique i mean first of all having a twin i i you know we always talk about like not comparing yourself to other people and my sister is four years younger than me and even though there's a four-year age difference and a, a gender difference, uh, my mom was always comparing uh, my sister to me. She was like, why can't you be more like your brother? And, you know, that kind of created this, you know, my sister, uh, you know, always felt like she had to live up to me, but also felt like I have to live up to this, uh, I, this ideal brother uh, persona. Um, at all times so it created that kind of thing so i can't imagine if i had a twin like the what kind of comparison that would kind of draw like you know i can hear i can just in my mind imagine people going you're this twin and he's that twin it's always like the cool twin and the nerdy twin or the the party twin and the book twin like how did they how did people break you two down so there i mean there was definitely a lot of other people doing that to to us um and i mean it depended who who we were with i mean i i was definitely a little more uh you know my 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 twin joe he he was a bit more uptight than i was um and a bit more studious uh we got about the same kinds of grades but um uh you know we were just a little bit different um but we 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 got along very well and uh my family you know especially my parents uh, my parents were extremely vigilant about us being our own people. Um, and, you know, we had different abilities and we didn't compete with each other. Um, and they really tried to keep us from, from going down that road. Um, and so, you know, we had like, I mean, we had normal sibling rivalry and, you know, we were best friends, but we also 
butt heads like none other the way that brothers always can. Um, but I uh, think things have always been good with us. Um, and we're very close now. Uh, did he play sports also? Were you guys competitive athletically? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we, we played all the same sports. Um, soccer was our main one for a while. Uh, and he might argue you, but I would say I, I, I edged him out a little bit in soccer. I was just a tiny bit better at him. But then we switched to uh, running. I uh, did cross country and track. And he, he could smoke me in a long distance race. If it was, uh, if it was cross country or the two mile on the track, he, 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 could, uh, he could take me to the cleaners. But if it was like a mile or the 800, uh, I, I, was a little, I was a little better at those. I, I could go fast for quick bursts. And then I would uh, kind of lose steam. Um, but he was better at distance stuff. Right on. And and so, like, I would imagine having a, a younger brother that has meningitis. And you said he, he recovered further than a, a doctors thought he would. Like, to what extent? And, and what exactly are the symptoms of, of meningitis? I would imagine maybe he was, like, more wheelchair-bound. Yeah, so it was a so it's a bacterial infection at, that left him with um, irre, you know irreversible brain damage. Um, so he will technically not um, he will technically not mature past the level of about a six seven year old. Um, but the doctors, you know, he had vision problems, he had motor control problems. You know, they didn't think he was ever going to be able to eat by himself. Um, they didn't think he'd be independent in any way whatsoever. Um, you know, they, they, they really didn't have a lot of hope for him to even live. So, uh, he came out of a coma. I mean, he had all kinds of therapy, but he got vision back in both his eyes. He has, you know, um, he has motor control with both his hands, took a lot of physical therapy to, to accomplish that took a lot of physical therapy for him to be able to stand and walk and do things. He was wheelchair bound for, um, a while. Uh, and I have a pretty vivid memory of him standing for the first time. Um, but yeah, he could do a lot now. Uh, he, he loves playing tennis, racket, baseball. Um, he, he, he loves swimming. That's his favorite. Uh, cause it's a little bit easier for him to move around, um, you know, with the buoyancy of the water. Um, when he was younger, he, he would do a little bit of horseback riding, uh, does bike rides, walks on the treadmill in the morning. So, um, and he, he's learned, so he's, he's deaf, uh, but he's learned sign language. Um, and he can communicate pretty well. He's actually, um, for all of his disabilities, he's actually extremely intelligent. Uh, he knows how to make up signs to explain to you what he wants and he can see when you don't understand what he's saying and will adjust his made up signs accordingly until you figure it out. Um, so he does some pretty incredible things sometimes that, uh, that he definitely was not supposed to do per, you know, the diagnosis. All right. So you have a twin brother and you also have a, a younger brother who is exceeding beyond uh, medical explanations and ex- or ex- expectations. I would imagine, <laughs> on some level, that th- 
that would put a pressure on you to to do more. And like you said, you you grew up in a well-to-do household, so not only do you not have an excuse to um, voice your pain um, or, or whatever your struggles are, but now you also have a younger brother who is, you know, seemingly progressing without complaint also. So you have all these things that are saying to you that, uh, you know, your pain and your burden uh, doesn't really matter and shouldn't matter because you, you, you have all these things. Is that yeah, is that I, kind of like what what you kind of felt like on some level? Yeah, I I, I definitely I definitely did that to myself um, for a while when I was younger. Um, it, it was pretty much along the lines of what you said. You know, I I looked at what was around me and I thought, well, I have no right to complain, and whatever I'm feeling logically just doesn't make any sense. Um, and I really didn't know anything about it. I mean, it, it, it made no sense to me why at 17 years old, I was having, you know, intrusive thoughts of suicide when my life was great. Um, and, and I also, I, I, I was afraid that I was crazy. Um, because I, I, I really didn't know. Um, I, I didn't know that that was normal for someone struggling with depression. And I didn't know, that you could struggle with depression absent a tragedy. Um, and so I just, you know, I just didn't want to talk about that. Before we get into the intrusive thoughts on suicide, what uh, d- does your, did your parents do for work? Oh, for work. Um, so my dad, uh, my dad is a mechanical engineer. He also went to Penn state. Um, and he works with, uh, he works, uh, for, for the government. He's a civilian worker for the Navy, um, works on, uh, aircraft carriers mostly now. Um, and my mom was, uh, it's called a C print captionist where she, uh, she would go to school and she would, um, basically go, she would be paired with a deaf student. And she would go to classes with them and would type the notes that the teacher was saying and then would send all those notes um, at the end of the day to the student. Um, And that's sort of a program so that uh, deaf students um, can be in regular classes and still participate. Um, And so she did that until Gabriel aged out of the public school system at 21, um, which was about five years ago. Wow. All right. So, I mean, for me, I guess what I'm doing is I'm trying to piece together all these different pieces of of what, you know, can contribute to feelings of depression, a feeling like a burden, feeling isolated and uh, or, you know, just adding pressure onto your plate. And, you know, your father being a, uh, you know, a mechanical engineer in the Navy, I, I would imagine a guy like that is not expressing a lot of emotions. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I can't say my dad is the most emotionally impressive person. Um no. But he's not close to it. He's not close to it either. Um and so I'll, you know, I I definitely have to give him credit there. You know, it's 
it's not like I ever tried to talk to him about something and he told me, oh, you know, that's that's stupid. You just have to get over it or that's not a real issue. Um, because when I did go to my parents and I said I was struggling, they took it very seriously and nobody thought it was stupid. Um, and they're very good about, you know, talking with me about it. Um, but yeah, he, you know, he's not the most emotional person. No. Yeah. So what, what did you guys talk about at the dinner table? All those nights without the TV on what, what was, what was it like, you know, what'd you learn in school today? Or, you know, was your mom talking about, you know, the, the students that she worked with? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so we would talk about that stuff. We, you know, we would talk about, um, you know, we would talk about life. We would talk about religion and, and, and God. And uh, we would talk about, you know, the right way to treat people. Um, we talk about politics sometimes. Uh, we, we talked about, we talked about everything, um, you know, it, and it wasn't always, it wasn't always that kind of stuff either. Sometimes it would just be, you know, what'd you do today? You know, what, you read in a book. What's it about? Do you like the book? Um, you know, uh, you know, what, what, what's your favorite subject in school? Why is that your favorite subject? You know, uh, how are your friends doing? So all, all kinds of things, you know, they, they, they were, um, in they were inquisitive without being meddling. Um, you know, they, they took an interest. Um, and I would say what they really did was, they tried to guide us in the right direction and also give us the freedom to make choices along the way. So, you know, they weren't tyrants, but they didn't set up no borders either. You know, um, they, they gave us general guidelines and a path and then, you know, gave us freedom to decide things. Um, which, you know, now, now that I'm 27 years old, almost 28, I, I have to give them a lot of credit for, uh, you know, the way that they, they raised me and my brothers. Cause, uh, I can't imagine it was easy. Yeah. Three boys, you know, that, that's a rambunctious, uh, rambunctious or ram, I think rambunctious household right there. The, yeah. <clears throat> what was I going to say? I completely, I completely spaced what I was going to ask you. Uh, but <laughs> anyway, so you're you're 17 and you are ex experiencing these intrusive suicidal thoughts. What are the thoughts around it? Like, is it I'm a burden? Like, what do what do you what what are the thoughts that are accompanying that? It it was definitely that I was a burden. Um, it was also that I was not good enough. Um, like I said, I was uh, I was a little bit lazy in high school. I mean. And, and, and you wouldn't know it from anybody else's reactions. I mean, my, my, my parents were proud of what I did in high school and, and I got good grades. Um, I think it was just, I knew that I could take it to another level and I, I had no concept of moderation. Uh, I, I did not understand how to moderate. So it was either, you know, the effort that I put into something was, a hundred percent. And by a hundred percent, I mean, it had to leave me nearly dead or it wasn't good enough. Um, and it's hard to do that. So I, I really set myself up. Um, I, I, I put myself in the kind of mind frame where no matter what I did, 
I lost and I was this, this burden and this loser and this person that didn't deserve the good life that I had. Um, and, and so I think that was a, a really major component of it was guilt. Um, I really felt guilty about how good my life was. And I did not think that I had, uh, you know, I recognized that I didn't do anything different than anyone else. I was just born and I had these things and other people didn't. And I started to really struggle with how to deal with that in high school. Um, and it felt like such a ridiculous problem, like, like such a first world problem that I did not feel comfortable saying it to anyone. Um, and so I just tried to bury it and, uh, sort of overcome it with achievement. Um, and that didn't work. (laughs) It, it did not work. So what was your grad what was your GPA when you graduated from high school, Mr. Lazy, not good enough? I forget exactly what it was, but it was it was over a four L because we had honors classes and AP classes and it was like an A in an honors class was a four or five and an A in an AP class was a five And I took like all AP classes in my junior and senior year. Um I had a bunch of credits going into college. So I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was, it was probably somewhere around a four, two, four, three. And so for the listeners out there, cause I know I have listeners in Thailand and, uh, uh, Ireland and, uh, Asia and, and throughout parts of the world, uh, you know, uh, AP courses are the, uh, what does AP stand for? That, that, that lets you know what my GPA was in high school. Uh, I I think I think it's advanced placement. Uh, yeah, advanced it, placement. So basically, yeah. Lucas was really smart. Like the 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 cap is four and you only get above a four if you've taken AP courses, as uh, Lucas has stated. So, and I want to highlight this because we, when we are experiencing symptoms of depression and and we are uh, you know struggling with suicidal. Uh, ideations, it really is a testament to how distorted our thinking becomes, to how myopic it becomes, to how diminutive it becomes. Because, you know, here Lucas is sharing that he had not just a 4.0, which is a perfect GPA uh, uh, by all standards, but it's an above a 4.0 and still feeling uh, like he's not good enough feeling like he's lazy um, and, you know, and, and feeling guilty about all these things because it, you feel like there's an extra gear uh, in there that you, you haven't tapped into. And, and Lucas, I also feel like part of what contributes to that is the American mindset of like no pain, no gain. Right. And, and it's like, if we're not, like you said, like it, you were either a hundred percent all in or, you know, you're not touching it at all. Like, it's either zero or 100 uh, with you. And we have this idea that we have to be 100% in on everything. You know, I was just watching this documentary called, uh, it was a master class of uh, this guy's a gangster gardener. And he was talking about when you are plucking leaves from a plant, you only want to pluck a, a third, uh, or from a herb, you only want to pluck a third of the leaves from the herb 
or else you will uh, kill it. You'll put it in a shock and it'll die. And the, the, I bring that up to say that if we pluck uh, more than a third of our energy for something, we can we can uh, we can trigger um, uh, overwhelm and and uh, and uh, burnout in those situations. So this idea of giving a hundred percent for everything is not sustainable. Obviously, one and and two. Lucas? Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. I, I got I got like a little beep beep. Um so I appreciate you I appreciate you Lucas sharing, you know, that that uh, detail with us because I just really want to highlight why cognitive behavioral thinking has been uh uh shown to be so effective in treating suicidal ideations because Really, we are talking about getting in there and unpacking how we think and and, and perceive the world and our life uh, uh, in it. Um, so, thank you for sharing that, that Lucas. Yeah, absolutely. So, after you, you know, after high school, you go to college, and and uh, and so it sounds to me like a part of you wanted to uh, also show your you know, make your dad proud because you went into the same field that he went into. And it also sounds like it was kind of a punishment for you of like, I'm lazy. I got to, you know, I got to do something that's going to whip me into shape. So you pick, you know, one of the hardest, um, you know, majors to go into. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it, it was pretty much exactly that. Um, and I even say that in, uh, in my book that I realized that uh, there were kind of, a, a, you know, there were a few reasons that I went into it, but two big things was um, a desire to do the right thing and really a, a, a punishment that I thought that I deserved. Um, and uh, yeah, and, that, and that, that was why, you know, when I started to realize, like, I I hate this stuff. I, you know, I don't like it. And it's, 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 you know, it's killing me doing this. Um, I wouldn't stop. Cause I, I just thought if I can, in, in my mind, it was like, if I can get through chemical engineering, then all of this guilt, all, all of this stuff that I feel that I know is not right. All of it will go away. And, and I will have earned something and I'll be okay. Um, and that was sort of my thought process. So it was like, it, it, it really was to me, it was like, I need to do this, you know, for my life. And it took me a while to kind of unpack that that's how I set it up. Um, you know, I didn't understand that at the time, but, uh, I understand it now. Um, you know, after, uh, being in therapy and, and, and talking with my doctor and stuff, just how I set that all up in my head. Yeah. You know, at, at the age of 17, when you're having these intrusive thoughts and you said you talked to your, your parents, what were the next steps after that? Did you, did they put you in therapy? Was there a school counselor? What, what happened? Oh, well, so I actually didn't tell them anything until my final semester of college when I was, 
22 or 23, um, that's when I finally said something about the depression because I, I had done a very good job at just kind of grinding through it all those years. Um, and it was always getting worse. Um, I, I was starting that, especially in my junior year and my, my senior year, uh, I started having lots of panic attacks. Um, I was having nightmares. Uh, I, I, I was having brain fog really bad where, you know, I would just completely forget what I was doing and it was happening all the time. Um, and it really felt like there was this sludge that would just kind of come into my head and just muck up all the gears. Um, and, and I didn't know any of that was depression related. I didn't know the suicidal ideation was depression related. I didn't, which sounds really stupid now, but I, um, you know, I, I just, I was, I didn't know. Um, and then I, uh, I actually, I got an internship. Um, so I, I had to go to college one extra semester. So I got my internship for the summer between my senior year and that extra semester. And I was really, really excited about this internship because, um, when I got into college and these feelings of depression didn't go away, I decided that when I picked a major, um, my feelings of depression would go away. And then I, I got into chemical engineering and they didn't go away. And then I decided that when I got an internship and it was clear that I was going to graduate, then I would feel better because I proved to myself that I could make it. So this internship was one of my two goals. Um, and even though it was all the way out in New Mexico, I was really pumped about this thing because to, to me, this was going to put me back together and this was going to give me my life back. Um, and so I, you know, I finish out the year and I fly down to New Mexico, uh, that May, and, you know, two weeks to a month on the job, I realized that, that, that this is not going to fix me and no, there's no job that's going to fix me. And, and graduation is not going to fix me. And I'm, I'm unfixable. Uh, whatever's happening to me, I, I am hopelessly broken and defected. And that's when I really started falling apart. And I, I, I had a hard time eating. I lost like 20 to 30 pounds in uh, the three months that I was down there. Um, and I, I'm, I'm a thin dude. You know, I was, I was a runner, so dropping that much weight was uh was not good i i looked pretty sick and when i came home from new mexico um i was only home for a little bit before i had to go back to school and uh, my family was pretty alarmed they they could see at this point that something was not right and i could see that they didn't really believe me when i gave the excuse of you know jet lag i'm you know i'm just tired i'm i'm getting over the, the time difference, you know, whatever. Cause I was only home for, uh, about a week and a half before I went back to Penn state. And then what really did it for me was, um, I, I, I had this, this, this morning, uh, where I just, I couldn't eat. Um, I, you know, I was awake all night having these panic attacks the whole night, just staring at the ceiling, thinking of taking my life. Um, and then I got up in the morning and I just said, I'm tired of feeling this way. Like this, this sucks. And, and whatever this thing is, that's going on with me. I'm going to beat it. And I'm going to beat it today. 
and that's it. I'm done. I'm done feeling like this. And I went into the kitchen and, you know, I got myself a bagel um, and, uh, you know, I buttered it up and I tried to take a bite of it and I just started gagging. And if there was anything in my stomach, I would have thrown up, but I hadn't eaten in like two days. And no matter how many times I tried to take a bite of this bagel, I just could not do it. And, you know, when I was at, at that point, when I realized, you know, I, I am so sick, so I'm, I'm so distraught with whatever's going on in me that I'm physically breaking down to the point of being literally unable to eat. I was finally able to admit that it was real, that that whatever I was going through all those years was real and that I wasn't making it up. I wasn't feeling sorry for myself. I wasn't looking for attention and it was, it was real and I needed to do something about it. Um, because I knew I was going to die if I didn't. Uh, and I got up out of the apartment and I called my dad. Um, and I, I intended on having just, you know, a normal conversation with him just saying, you know, something's not quite right. You know, I, I feel off. And, and I think I need some help. Um, but you know, it was, it was real early on a, on a weekday. He knew I wouldn't have been calling unless something was wrong. Um, so, you know, he answered the phone, he sounded kind of concerned and, you know, he just said, Lucas, what's, what, what's wrong. Um, and to my embarrassment, I just started crying. Um, cause I just, I just couldn't take it anymore. Um, and I just told him, I, I don't know what's wrong dad, but I, I feel like I'm falling apart. And something's got to change. Um, and my parents were really good about it. They, uh, you know, they didn't poo-poo it. They didn't tell me that there was no reason for me to feel that way. They just said, okay, you know, what can we do to help? And they came and, uh, they got me and I went home for a couple days and, uh, they found a doctor for me. Cause I, you know, I, I at this point I just, I just was unable to do anything. Um, so they, they found the doctor, they got me to the doctor and, uh, this guy was great. He was exactly the type of person that I needed. You know, he, he was funny. Uh, he was warm and friendly, super quacky and, uh, swore a lot. I mean, you know, the F bomb was every third word out of his mouth. Um, and so I love this guy right away. Cause that's, that's kind of the way that I am. Uh, and he didn't treat me like I was broken. And he also didn't treat me like my problems weren't real. Um, and so he, he really helped me a lot. And uh, he kind of got my feet back under me. And um, then I went back to school and I just started doing the work. Um, I started doing the work of, of therapy and uh, I got on some antidepressants um, and I had some anti-anxiety medicine for a little bit. And uh, things started to improve. What did that, you know, you talked about the anti-depressants. Uh, I mean, first of all, big shout out to you for calling out for help. So so many of us, I mean, myself included, I, I struggle with just letting someone know that we're in pain and we need help. So the fact that you called someone and, you know, th that being your parents, and that they were receptive to it, uh, big up to you and big up to your parents for, uh, you know, uh, listening to you and acting on it. Uh, and, and you're right. It is really about finding a doctor, you know, for 
people out there who've had one therapist and I'm like, oh, therapy doesn't work. It really is about finding that doctor you feel connected to. It's not always about the credentials. It's about someone that you feel, uh, like you said, he didn't make you feel like you were broken and uh, he made you feel like, you know, uh, you, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a lost cause. There was, it was something that could be done. Um, right. The, what was the work that you, you had to do um, outside of just taking the, outside of the antidepressants? So before my experience with this, I, I used to think that this kind of stuff was sort of nonsense, psycho babble. Um, but it, it was, uh, it was really the, the, the cognitive behavioral therapy where, you know, we would just, we would just talk and he would look at my thought processes, kind of like what you were doing a little bit earlier and, and how you picked out just from this conversation that part of my motive without me realizing it, like without me consciously understanding it part of my motive for going into chemical engineering was to punish myself. And he would pick things out like that. And he would say, you know, why do you feel that you deserve to be punished? And, you know, we would talk about that for a little bit. And I think one of the big things that he did for me, and um, it's also a message that I talk about in my book is we have to be willing to change. Right. And that doesn't mean that we're bad it doesn't mean that we did something wrong or that we're defective, but I also was not perfect the way that I was. I, I had very good intentions, um, but you know the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? I, I had very good intentions, and part of my depression was these destructive thought patterns that I did not realize were destructive. I, I thought they were good. I thought they were what I was supposed to be doing. Um, and so, you know, I, I had to do things that were really hard for me to do, like, uh, you know, introduce a little moderation into my life. Um, I had to figure out how to balance being firm with myself with also being kind to myself. Um, you know, I, I think there are some people that are, uh, you know, much too kind to themselves and have no firmness in there. And I, I don't necessarily think that's the answer. And then there are other people like me who were just all hard on themselves, no kindness. Um, and that was a change, a, a fundamental change in, in who I was. Um, and it's never easy for any of us to change who we are. Uh, and so that was the work that I had to do. And I, I think that's the work that's the work that always has to be done in therapy. Um, and I think that anyone that's ever hit rock bottom in their life, whether it's from a mental illness or addiction or alcoholism, I, I think they're going to understand, um, you know, what I mean by that, because when you hit rock bottom, I, I think that's when you look in the mirror and you realize, well, something's got to change and I'm not blaming myself. I'm not, you know, it's not a guilty thing, but something's not working and I got to do something different. And, and that was the work. It, was there any like journaling or uh, meditation or anything outside of you, you talked about moderation? So I imagine that meant you, you know, going, running like, uh, you know, 100 miles a day to like 99 miles a day. Uh, but what would it, 
<laughs> yeah. yeah yeah that's that's pretty much how i did it until uh until you know my doctor would be like no no you need to cut that down to 70 miles a day type thing um what did that language sound like but, uh, that, that that you know you talked about kind being kind and firm that's a that's a challenge for all of us you know we always want to make sure we're not letting ourselves off the hook when you when you are having that that dialogue with yourself what are you saying what does the firm and and kind voice sound like um so i'll 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 give you an example um it was after my doctor told me about this there was um that through a series of events i i had a health class that i had to take in my final semester and I, i was in just like your regular like you know, tennis and something happened and it got canceled. And somehow I got put into like a biology class. Um, and it was something that would have been a, an absolute breeze for me, uh, in any of the prior semesters. And I went to walk into that class and to this day, I still cannot explain it what happened, but I just, I just could not do it. I, I was, at the building, I was staring at the door, and it was like if I walked into that class, it, it wasn't like I was going to die. It was like I was going to be obliterated from all existence ever. And I remember thinking to myself, this is so stupid. Just take the damn step. Like, get over it. Like, this is ridiculous. You know, mind over matter, all that stuff. And then, uh, you know, my my doctor's voice kind of came in my head about being kind to myself, and I just said, "You know what? I don't understand why this is happening, but it's okay. You're going to walk away from this today, Lucas, and this is not going to be a defeat. This is going to be you learning something new. And you could tell your doctor that this happened. You could talk about why it happened and how to overcome it the next time. Um, and so the kindness was." okay, this took me by surprise. I'm going to cut myself some slack. And then the firmness was, I'm not going to allow this exact scenario to happen again. You know, maybe I get taken by surprise on something else, but this exact thing, I'm not going to allow that to happen again. We're going to figure out why this happened and we're going to work through it. Um, and, 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 the way also that I was kind to of myself, you know, sometimes I had days and I'm sure you've had days and uh, I'm sure your listeners have had days where it just feels like it's impossible to get out of bed, just impossible. And the firmness would say, you have to get out of bed. You can't have a zero day. You can't have a day where you do nothing. And the kindness would say, but you can get up, walk 10 feet and go lay down on the couch. And so that's what I would do that on the days that were really bad. I'd say, I'm not staying in bed all day. I'm getting up and I'll go to the couch and I will lay on the couch for like another two hours. Um, and that was sort of the balance that I gave myself. Man, I, I love that. It, it really is about just saying, you know what, let's just do one thing because, and, and I, I'm sure you found this Lucas, you know, giving yourself permission to, to feel and to just do one thing, then you're like, all right, I did that one thing. I mean, let me knock out two other things. And then you do two and then it becomes five and it becomes, I mean, every now and again, you're just on the couch for the whole day. 
But right. more times than not, if you get to the couch, then you also might take a step outside and et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. It's like the hardest part is getting started. And as you know, once, once you get started, who knows where it's going to go, you know? And, and like you said, sometimes the couch is as far as you get. That's all right. But other times, okay, I'm up. I'll go over to the kitchen now and maybe have a little snack or, you know, I'll, I'll go for a walk or I'll go to my class and, you know, if, if I'm feeling it, I'll stay. And if I'm not, I'll, I'll get up and I'll leave. And that's what I did. Look, is there anything from your journey that you've learned in terms of dealing with your, your mental health, coping with the panic attacks, the suicidal ideations, the, the, the feelings of guilt uh, that we haven't discussed? I, yeah, so I mean, I, I, I think uh, some of the major stuff, um, and I, I, I talk about this stuff a lot in the second part of my book, um, which is, uh, uh, it's all about what I did to get to the other side of depression, and then what what that looked like, um, and how I had to think about things. And there were two really major things that I did. Um, one was I, I recognized right away that I couldn't feel sorry for myself because that was just going to lead to resentment and bitterness. And I was never going to get better. And I was just going to drown in a pool of my own self pity. And I was like, okay, I can't go down this road. And if I can't feel sorry for myself, that means I can't blame anyone or anything else. I, I, I can't blame the news. I can't blame God. I can't blame my family. I can't blame myself in, in the wrong way. You know, no blaming anyone. So one of my big rules is, you know, let go of all the boogeymen and just hold on. Just, just ride it out when you're at the bottom. Um, the second was, to really start working on, on gratitude, um, and not, you know, not kind of brainless, toxic positivity stuff where, you know, you could get in a car accident and you're like, Oh, well the sun's shining. Like, no, I, you know, you don't have to do that, but finding a way to be thankful for just everyday things in my life and, and being present in the moment and, and enjoying the moment that I was in, Right. Understanding that, yes, tomorrow is going to come and I have to do things today to be ready for tomorrow. But I don't only have to think about tomorrow because if I do that, I'm going to burn out. Um, and the third really big thing is I kind of looked around at people in my life, people that I knew, people that I've met, people that I was friends with. And I started to see patterns in the people that uh, kind of lived with joy and the people that didn't. And I noticed that the joyful people had something larger than themselves in their life. They, they cared about something more than themselves. And that didn't mean that they didn't care about themselves. And that didn't mean that they didn't take care of themselves or that they put themselves last. But they had something that was more important than themselves. And they acknowledged what that was. And... The other people did not, the people that weren't happy. And I realized that I had to start living for something more than just me. 
and, and that having something like that would, would make uh, sort of the inherent pain that comes along with life, it would make it worth it to go through that, to, to get to the joyful moments, you know, to, to, to get to the college graduations or the Thanksgiving dinners or the, or the birthdays or whatever it is that brings you joy, um, whatever your idea of that is. Um, and as I, as I realized that, and I really dedicated myself to that, um, the, the gratitude and the living for something larger than myself, that, that really gave me a lot of healing. Um, and that's, that was a big part of me getting to the other side of my depression. I, I love you sharing that, you know, in, in Japan, they call it a, a Masogi, Masoji, I believe it's called Masogi, Masoji. But it's basically mm-hmm. like you create, um, you do one thing every year that uh, puts you uh, outside of yourself that kind of tests your limits. Uh, and I only bring this up because some people, they have a family and, and so they think about their family and that's something bigger than themselves. Or they do uh, volunteer work or, uh, you know, it's like save the whales, you know, whatever that that causes that's bigger than them. Um, and then for other people, if that's not available to you for whatever reason, um, is just that, you know, every year to have that thing where you say, uh, all right, once a year I'm going to, you know, hike the highest uh, peak, uh, you know, in my country or in another country or I'm going to do uh, a thousand push-ups. Like, you know, just to have that thing once a year where you kind of push yourself outside of yourself or uh, find a way to give to other people, whether it's Habitat for Humanity, um, et cetera, et cetera, uh, that could be another way to, to, to view it um, it's for those who can't have that ongoing process of giving to something uh, bigger than them. The Yeah, uh, that's... Go ahead. That's really cool. No, that's that. That's a cool thing that I I did not know was a, a a Japanese custom. But that's that's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, one of my buddies. He this this year's Masoji was gonna uh, he's gonna bike ride with some buddies up in uh, Italy. Uh, and last year it was he did a, a mini triathlon. So you know there most cultures every culture has this thing where. You know, every now and again, there's a test of, of who you are, a test of your character or a way in, in which you give back. When we look at um, the Amish culture, one of the, the beautiful things about their culture is, you know, when they uh, built homes, they were always building homes for other people. You know, the whole community would come together and, uh, it, you know, the, cut the wood, uh, you know, measure, nail, roof, shingle all the things and, you know, cook food. And it was the entire community was involved. So they had inherently built into their culture uh, a, a process of thinking about something bigger than them. It was, it was just inherent. You didn't, you didn't have to come up with it. And I think that in America's uh, more individualized culture, uh, we really have to be more uh, proactive in creating that. Yeah. Um, Lucas, yeah. is, is there, is there anything that we haven't, uh, is there anything else that we haven't discussed that you want to share? I think that was a beautiful, those were three beautiful things in terms of gratitude, thinking about something, uh, bigger than yourself and, and not 
feeling sorry for yourself at all, uh, those, those are massive uh, antidotes for depression and suicidality. Yeah, I, I, I think that those are really the crux of, uh, of what I wanted to say. Um, and I'm, I'm just thankful to you, Leo, for, for having me on here and, and giving me the chance to, to just talk about this some more. I, I really appreciate it. Last question, Lucas, and I ask this of all my guests, because I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Lucas? I would say to live one more hour, to just live one more hour, because sometimes it feels impossible to make it through a lifetime, and sometimes it feels impossible to make it through a day. But if you can just make it one more hour, then you can make it another hour and another hour after that and another hour after that. And eventually you'll come to the point where you see that on the other side of your pain, there is a rich, wonderful, beautiful, fulfilling life that you deserve. So please hold on for that because you deserve that great life on the other side of your pain. Thank you so much, Lucas. You deserve that great life on the other side of your pain. Uh, remember, listeners, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help for you calling at 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALK or the other international numbers that I have listed in all of the show notes. Uh, you can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Lucas. Thank you, Leo.